Traduction. Translation. Traduction. Translator's note. Welcome to Translator's Note. I'm Claire Bregabowski, and today we'll be talking about theater translation. Only a tiny fraction of works published in translation each year are plays, and only a tiny fraction of plays produced each year are works in translation. But translating theater comes with its own particular set of joys and challenges. For my first interview, I spoke with Nahma Sandro. A translator and scholar of Yiddish theater, Nahma's published works include Vagabond Stars, A World History of Yiddish Theater, and the anthology God, Man, and Devil, a collection of Yiddish plays in translation. Her second anthology, Yiddish Plays for Reading and Performance, was published in 2021. I guess I want to just start out by asking if you could talk a little bit about your translation process, sort of the the strategies you use, and how you go about translating these plays. Well, translating plays, I find, is much pleasanter, it's more fun, you know, than, than translating other stuff, because it's somebody talking. And I think of it sometimes as ventriloquism, you know, you the, the character talks and you open your mouth and out it comes. It's somebody's voice. And uh, you have to know the language, but it's not just knowing the language. It's, it's hearing the voice, you know. And then always when I've translated a play, I've had people over in my living room to read it before before I consider that the translation is done because you can hear sometimes when things don't sound right. You know, it's too clunky. It takes too long for the words to get out of the speaker's mouth. So you got to figure out another way. It's also good because you can hear some. I had last week some of my translations were read out loud and I mean were performed were spoken and I heard something I didn't like I mean it's too late it's published you know but somebody used the word a bum and I dimly remember even being not altogether comfortable when I used it but it if the people were speaking now it's what they would have said but it's too modern, you know, it's too American. It's too, it's too late. It's too late to change it. That, that one word you mentioned, and when you're talking about, you know, that's what people would say now. I'm so curious about audience. And I mean, we always talk about audience and translation, but I think it's just so much more present in theater because those are texts meant to be performed. I guess I'm just wondering who your audience is and what choices you make to reach the contemporary audience. So there are specific problems with Yiddish. If you translate a play, when you're translating a play with pious people, so there's something that pious people do to today. They quote, if they're quoting Torah, they quote, it's Hebrew, and if they're quoting Talmud, it's Aramaic, but they quote, and then immediately they 
translate into the vernacular, which is in these plays, the vernacular is Yiddish, but nowadays the vernacular could be English. It's the vernacular. So if you translate that, then it's the original in English and the translation in English. And that doesn't make any sense, you know. <laughs> so what I did with that, part of that whole transaction, that whole moment, is that is specifically the translation that it comes from another another world, another sound. So I put in the original transliterated so that they're translating from a language and the audience doesn't probably understand that language, but they're gonna get it translated a minute later. Then um, it's so common to the culture, whether the plays were written in the old country or written here, it's so common that people are multilingual. So they speak one and then they speak the other depending on whom they're talking to sometimes, who's on the stage, you know. I've always loved this multilingualness in Yiddish texts and the way it manifests and changes across different texts and across different times. That play from the 30s, the plot is that somebody has lived in America for decades. He, he came as a young man and he's not young anymore. And he brings over his old parents. So he has a wife that knows no Yiddish and children who know no Yiddish, only English. And the grandparents know only Yiddish. And he goes and finds for when he is in home to help and to translate, he finds a guy, an immigrant. And the immigrant is supposed to know English, knows English and remembers Yiddish, but he's been here so long that he doesn't realize that he's using English words with a Yiddish accent. He's used to saying winde uh, for window. Well, of course, the old people don't know what's a winde, right? So that the audience gets it all. And it's funny, it's actually a sad play because they can't, in a deeper sense, they, they don't all understand each other, you know, but it, it's comedy, it's comedy. So, all right, so there's the multilingual and there are the times when the multilingual is unconscious so that the dialogue is not making a point of it. I mean, sometimes it is, there's a lot of comedy on the Yiddish stage of languages, of puns, of people not understanding each other because of language, because part of the life, you know, I think as well, because the culture is interested in that, but also just because it's, 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 it's verisimilitude, you know, so sometimes what I did was my thinking was that if, if somebody says to you that something is chic, we don't spell it S-H-E-E-K, you know, but we know on some level that that's French and so it's classy and it's elegant, but it's not the point. So you, you register the Frenchness of it, but you only pay attention to the fact that it means 
elegant and good looking and stylish. And so I put, sometimes I put words like that in italics on the theory that what your ear would do if you were hearing it, your eye would do when you see it, you see that it's foreign. And then there are words like bar mitzvah or um, tefillin. I've never heard anybody, I mean, including people that know no Hebrew, they wouldn't say phylacteries, you know? I mean, that is the word for it, but I've never heard anybody say it. Right, there's the, the Yiddish and the Hebrew that have sort of made their way into yeah, English like that. they're borrowings because there is no word for it exactly. Where, where do you draw the, the line, I guess, between, because I think there are multiple, we've got multiple, ver- so many vernaculars in English in America, and you have, you know, your modern reformer conservative Jewish vernacular and the words that, that we would understand coming from the Yiddish of customs and ceremonies, but then you have sort of a broader non-Jewish American English who wouldn't understand that. And I'm wondering sort of, what do you do with those words, the words that, and the concepts that fall in between? I wrote a play based on a Yiddish comedy called Kunilamo, and it ran a long time, ran almost a year. I mean, the original's funny too, but it's, we told ourselves, it's what Goldfaden would have written if he was Mozart. You know, that was our concept. And it's important in that play that somebody, a clown of a character, had um, had a social position because he was the gabai. But this is a comedy, you know, and he's sort of a clown. So I said, the Holy Rebbe's right-hand man, which is sort of, you have to believe me, it is sort of funny line in, the, in context. <laughs> I mean, it always got a laugh. And every once in a while, people used that but mostly after the first time they just said gabai now that's not everything a gabai is obviously but it's what counted so you can sometimes you gloss it and then you see it we put in a farce in that production a strimal is that fur hat right so we never translated it but people kept handing it on you know i mean it was obvious so we never had to translate it because it was not reducible and because the sound of it we figured the sound of it equaled footnotes or it equaled context that it would have to serve as context and it had to do the work like music of the of the period it substituted for anything that we told people or a slide on stage of somebody making a blessing. And it did the work for that. And it was the sound of the language. Mostly, I don't approve of throwing in a Yiddish word. In the same way, throwing in a French word, if you're translating. The premise is that you are somehow, through a magic veil, hearing the original. And in the original, it's all that language. It's only... It destroys the illusion, I think. I've always found it especially easy in Yiddish to move into a theoretical space, to get caught up in all these language-specific challenges Nahma describes. But I also knew that even beyond the examples she's mentioned so far, 
throughout all the plays she's translated, there must be so many fascinating moments where she's dealt with these and other questions. So I asked Nahma to talk some more about specific translation challenges she's faced. In a play, a very good play called, that I translated in the, the last anthology, God, Man, and Devil, there's a character who's a batchen, a jester, a retired old man, but he was a batchen, and he, a batchen had to be very learned. He did plays on words, uh, riffs on, on prayers, and on, a batchen had to be smart. There are several passages in this play in which the batchen does Balchen routines uh, that involves puns and plays on words, and in particular, one scene in which he uses he uses Balchen techniques to convey hostility, and I pulled it off. I did. I did. <laughs> it's not very long. It's maybe a page each time. He uses gematria, you know, the word that's the, the number values. Of, and, and I did it. I did puns also. I have to make up new puns. You know, you have to make up equivalent puns. But the Balkan was really, so that's one. The other question I have is sort of just about both what you choose and what exists in translation. Because I know you've said, I think you said this at the YIVO program and in your introductions, that you pick plays you like um, and that the scenes maybe that you choose approach a broader picture of like the range of Yiddish theater. But I'm wondering if there's any sort of specific gaps that you see of what you know exists and what English hasn't Absolutely. seen yet. Absolutely. The two most glaring omissions that I see in the world at large and, and in, in this last anthology of mine. There have been many plays in which there is discussion. People talk things over. If it's a good playwright, then there is some drama going on. And if it's a less good play than it, you know, it, there is so much drama going on. But there's real discussion. The, the fate of the Jews, assimilation versus Zionism versus piety, identity, where Jews fit in the world, where an intellectual, educated Russian Jew fits in Russian society. So conversations like that, there was a greater appetite for that kind of discussion on stage than I'm used to in American theater, English theater, ideally delivered by characters who maybe represent a position or who are interesting in themselves or, or who, who have to make decisions. So there's some time for this, some drama to it. There's nothing like that translated, I think. Uh, well, you know, these plays are, they're not lively and uh, they're not the modern taste. And I got irritated looking for one that had a scene that I could extract that I thought could stand by itself and people would, I finally said, oh, the hell with it. I have, I have this kind of scene and that kind of scene. But that's um, somebody 
or to translate a whole play of those, uh, some of which were really known in the repertory. They were never really popular. And then I don't have an operetta of Goldfaden's, and they're in rhymed couplets. So I, I translated, well, you know, it's like a game, especially since it's not like translating Moliere. Moliere is in rhymed couplets, but Moliere is, is really witty. So this is not so witty, you know. So, so I did a whole play, and I looked at it recently, and I see ways I could, it was, I see that it's a good thing it was not published because I could make it better. But at that time, I was committed to have it in another anthology, so I didn't put it in. Did you manage the rhyming couplets? Yeah, but there were also, now here's something else that's relevant. A lot of it was in a kind of a Deutschmarsch. Deutschmarsch is a very Germanified kind of Yiddish, which sounded classy, like people speaking, they talk about $5 word, or they used to, you know, fancy Latin language sounded fancy. Now it mostly sounds affected, but it sounded like, sounds like showing off. You know, a century ago, it was classier, two centuries. So when Goldfaden was writing, he used a more Germanic vocabulary then. So, you know, that makes it easier because of rhyming, right? It makes it easier. It's got its a rhythm and it's got a repetitive sounds for grammatical. So somebody's, well, I'm going to try to translate. I mean, I'm going to try to publish that. After spending time with plays written in the early 20th century, I was also curious about translating contemporary plays plays which may have only recently been produced for the first time in any language, and for which the translator might have the opportunity to work with a playwright. And I was also curious how translation could fit into the contemporary theater world. So I reached out to Aya Ogawa, a Brooklyn-based playwright, director, performer, and translator from the Japanese, to ask about her experience as a translator who works with the playwrights she is translating, and as a theater maker who infuses their own work with a multiplicity of perspectives, languages, and influences. Aya has translated a wide range of contemporary Japanese plays, including over a dozen by playwright Toshiki Okada, and her translations have been produced both in the U.S. and internationally. Aya has written, directed, and acted in numerous other productions, including The Nosebleed, which they wrote and directed, which had its world premiere in fall 2021. Usually when I'm starting work on a play, translation of a play, and particularly if I'm working with a playwright that I've never worked with before, hopefully I'm able to have a conversation with them about the work and about the context of their play. But most importantly, I ask for a video recording of a performance or even of a rehearsal, because I find that there are some things that just don't translate off the page. Um, and they could be anything from like rhythmic things, tempo things. They could be just the way the play relates to the audience. And so I usually find that that is one of the most important things for me to understand how to grapple with a text and how to translate it into a new context. And then from there, the process is pretty straightforward. I mean, I'm, I'm working on, you know, going through the text and translating it line by line, but also with an eye towards what is the bigger picture 
nature of this play as it functions in the theater? What does it assume about its audience or what kind of relationship does it want to build with the audience? And how can the, a translation try to capture all of that context? Then if there are particular questions that I have about how the playwright wants certain specific cultural things to be translated, whether they want to retain things that are specific to Japanese culture, or if they want to kind of loosen it up so that it's more easily digested and easily received by a non-Japanese audience. We have a conversation about that. And that also is informed by what the purpose of the translation is. Oftentimes, I get requests from artists for subtitles for, you know, if a, comp- if a Japanese theater company is touring to America or to Europe and they need subtitles or surtitles for their performance. Other times uh, they're looking for producers or they want to introduce a whole piece to a presenter or a producer um, abroad. Then they just want the entire script translated so that they can ascertain from reading the entire script what it's about. So depending on the purpose of the translation, um, we make these kinds of intricate choices. Usually there's a little bit of back and forth and hopefully we get to a place where we agree. (laughs) I also loved what you said about finding a recording. You've also talked about how one of the final steps you take when translating is to read the entire script out loud and the way that that's Connected to the idea that a play script isn't meant to be read silently, but to be embodied by people. Because I've always sort of thought of performance as a type Mm -hmm. of translation if you're working from a text. And I was just very interested in in hearing how you think about the ways that the the live off-the-page performance can then inform the translation onto a page. Yeah, I mean, it happens a lot. Also, it's, you know, this is kind of, it gives maybe more insight into like where I position myself to the Japanese language. But sometimes when I'm looking at something on the page, it feels more formal or it feels stiffer than it's actually intended to, you know, and to be able to hear the actors with the playwright's intent tension, you know, with, towards the text is just extremely helpful in terms of trying to massage the translation into the tone that the author intends. You mentioned like the relationship to the audience, and I'm wondering if, do you try to find something that feels like close to the same relationship? to, you know, an American audience, if you're translating within the context of the United States, as the play had with its original Japanese audience, or be aware that that can never quite happen? Are you looking to find a whole different relationship? Yeah, you know, the thing about translation, from my perspective, is that it is always imperfect, right? Like, it's, it's, it's kind of an impossible task. And 
I'm resigned to it being imperfect and impossible. And then like, where, where do you go from there? <laughs> where do you go from there? How do you make the best choices, you know, given those circumstances? So I keep thinking about this example. There's a play by Toshiki Okada called Enjoy. It was a commission from the new national theater uh, in Japan, in Tokyo. And so that theater, as you might be able to assume from the name of the theater, cultivate a certain kind of an audience, right? Like a more, uh, like an older, a more conservative audience. But the play was about, and this is written, you know, over 10 years ago, the play was about younger, a younger generation, like the playwright's generation and how people of his generation felt like the things that had the economic systems and the social systems that had worked for uh, Japanese people for a really long time were not working anymore. And so we're faced with a generation that's kind of floundering, how that manifests in people. And he, he was telling me about how, how that play in particular was received by the audience at the theater. And it was very poorly. <laughs> you know, there, he was like, they hated it. The audience hated it. The critics slammed it. Um, you know, it was probably the play that was the most uh, poorly reviewed of, of all the plays that he's written. But, you know, it very much captures this like moment in time and a kind of confrontation between two generations of, of Japanese people. And so obviously it's, you know, I can't capture that whole picture uh, through a translation of the text, but just having that in mind helped me kind of navigate through this text, which was also extremely difficult to unravel and decipher because, you know, part of the point of the play is that the, this generation of people couldn't finish a sentence like they couldn't make a point because they didn't really know what they truly believed or stood for because there was the ground that they were standing on was shifting so yeah it, it was about trying to capture a kind of rhythm or cadence in the language that felt super colloquial and immediate that would really work in an American or English speaking performer's mouth so yeah that's that's an example of of how that work of you know translating a context and trying to capture that in the text might work I'm also really interested in sort of the relationship between your translations and then your other work as a playwright as a theater maker and how they relate or how they diverge yeah you know I think Early on in my career, <clears throat> like you, I separated these processes. I mean, I, I kind of I stumbled into translating kind of by accident. It was not something that I had studied. It was not something that I was working towards necessarily. Um, I, I'm Japanese and American. I was raised in both cultures. So I happened to be bilingual just because of who... I was, who I was raised by and where I was raised. And thankfully, it turned out to be kind of a, a marketable skill 
in early on in my career as an artist, I was really uh, the translation part of my skill set was the one that was making me the most money, actually. And as my reputation as a translator became more known, I almost felt resentful because, you know, here I was trying to establish my identity as an artist, and yet I was becoming more known for my work as a translator of translating other artists' work. But the more I continued uh, all of the facets of, of art making that I do, I really started to see, of course, all the processes are quite different, but they are all kind of processes of translation, right? Like as an actor, I'm embodying the text and the translating that into and manifesting that in space using my body as the director i'm translating text off a page and trying to manifest it on, on, on the stage so in many ways i feel like they are they are parallel and resonant processes with each other and i do feel like they intersect with each other in many ways. I find that once I work really closely with a text in through a process of <clears throat> translation, there can be ideas or facets or something about that process that kind of stays with me. I mean, it's really also because it, the process of transla translation puts you in such an intimate relationship with somebody else's work, right? it almost becomes impossible to separate that. You know, it enters my imagination organically and I can't help it. So, so then there are places where that works its way through my imagination and, and, and I digest it and it somehow manifests in my own work. So I've had to come to terms with just it being like me being one person and engaging in, in multiple parallel and resonant processes that kind of uh, intersect and inform each other. That actually leads me very well to sort of questions about multilingualness in general. And you've described your own performances as being infused with like a with a multiplicity of perspectives of languages. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about multilingual projects, how that relates to translation or refusal to translate on stage. Yeah, I think that this might be my particular perspective as an American artist, which is that I, my view of America is that it, it is by nature incredibly diverse and holds multitudes and it is not, not monolithic. And through my work, I'm interested in bringing forth that perspective and using different languages is one of the ways that that I do that. And it's not just about using other languages. It's also about being very intentional about what is translated, what is not translated, how things are translated, and so on and so forth. So I'm trying to think of a good example. I was working with a playwright named Haruna Lee. I was directing their play Suicide Forest, which when they first presented the play to me, it was it was completely in English, even though the play was about an exploration of Japanese or Japanese American cultural identity. And as we worked together, I was kind of 
teasing out this question of, well, where, where does the Japanese language live in this piece? Because it is part of what you're exploring, uh, what they were exploring in the play. And so they started to kind of infuse some phrases here and there yeah, to, to uplift the language in a, in a new way. And then we got to one of the centerpieces of the play, which is a, a scene of extreme humiliation framed by a, a TV show where it, it's like a prank TV show where one character is really like abused and humiliated by his colleagues and his work boss. And the whole scene was written, well, originally it was written in English, but then we translated it into Japanese for the Japanese heritage actors to perform, to perform entirely in Japanese. And for me as a director, and you know, I see my director as role as a director as being like the first line audience for this play, it was less important for the audience, from my perspective, to understand line by line, literally what was being said from one person to, uh, to the next. It was more important for me for the audience to understand the big picture of the scene, the big deal of the scene. Um, and so instead of we we had these surtitles, but instead of translating things line by line, we opted to do something that was more of a closed captioning situation where the scene was described like the boss is humiliating his employee or the boss makes a sexist remark about you know whatever and that allowed a lot of things like that allowed for the japanese audience to have an immediate kind of visceral relationship to that scene and that moment in the play that allowed um, non-japanese speakers to uh, be able to focus on the the energy and the interaction that the uh, the actors were having without having to pay too close attention to moment by moment like what what exactly are they saying i'm always looking at the levels and degrees to which things are translated and what the function of the 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 foreign language has on the american stage do you find yourself doing the same thing in your translations into English where you'll leave things in the original or not translate? That's really an interesting question. Usually as a translator, my hope is that I'm creating a text that a non-Japanese or English-speaking theater or artist or producer or presenter would be interested in actually, you know, producing and creating an English language version of. And that usually means trying to make it as accessible to a non-Japanese person as possible, right? But again, this is a conversation with the playwright. Sometimes they're really attached to this particular dessert or whatever. It's a proper noun that you know doesn't exist anywhere except in Japan. And they, they really feel like, well, that thing like contains an essence that is that can't be replaced, that can't have a stand-in. Um, and then we'll argue about it, <laughs> you know? But again, it's always informed by like, well, what is the purpose of this? Are we gonna, are, are we publishing this? Is this for academic purposes? Or are we really trying to get someone interested to, to produce it? So that's a conversation that I have with, with the original playwright. 
I guess this is kind of in that vein, maybe. Um, but is there anything in particular that you look for if you're trying to find things to translate? Like I imagine sometimes people will come to you, but if you're looking for for work, is there something you look for? Is there something that you're explicitly hoping to bring to like an English language American audience? A lot of my translation work at this point stems from pre-existing relationships that I have with playwrights. And I really value these longer term relationships that I have because it's not only are we building trust between each other, but also it's really interesting for me to be able to have a relationship with an author over, you know, 10 years or 20 years and kind of see how the trajectory of their journey is shifting and changing and responding to the world. I often do feel a responsibility and also a power connected to that in deciding whether I take on a project or not. And I am consciously always looking for plays that I feel like are formally challenging and inventive. I'm also looking for perspectives that are not from the mainstream dominant Japanese culture, which, you know, is very male dominant and, and kind of, and, and sexist and, you know, all that. So yeah, I, I do seek out women playwrights. I'm seeking out queer playwrights and seeking out people who are talking about Japan in the context of a larger picture, like Japan in the context of Asia and what kind of harm it's caused historically, you know, things that are just usually not talked about in, in the kind of mainstream theater or, or TV world. I will just ask you one more question because we're running close to the time frame I gave you. Um, do you just have maybe one more small example of something you love translating or some particular challenge you faced in a specific text? I think um, <clears throat> this is it's something that I both love and hate, but um, <laughs> when I'm working with a playwright who's engaged in a kind of devising work, not, not even a devising work, but for example, um, a playwright that I work with, her name is Satoko Ichihara, and I just think that she is a remarkable voice in the Japanese theater scene. She talks about things that uh, nobody else really talks about, like uh, female sexuality and a lot of taboo topics like that, taboo culturally. But she was commissioned by a theater in Europe, and now I can't remember which country it was because the production then traveled to some places, but she drafted something and then she was going to direct it. So she took it there and she was working with the, the local actors there. Um, I think it might have been in Italy, but then found that the text was not working in the same way that she thought it would with these non-Japanese actors. And so she was really incorporating their perspectives into her piece and essentially like rewriting the play. So 
you know, that's super exciting, right? As a process, as an, as an artist, but also as a translator, really infuriating because like the text is keep, keeps shifting, keeps changing. And every day I would get an email about, you know, like we have a new section of this play and there's like a premiere day, you know, and I'm like, ah, so I would say like that is, I, I love that she's doing that. I love that that work is happening and it's also extremely frustrating um, when things are shifting all the way to the last minute. And, you know, it. I think that if I had been there in the room, you know, that is the ideal situation, right? Because I can see and anticipate how the play might be shifting. But when I'm so far away and everything is being done over email, it can get really frustrating and I, I can feel blindsided about, you know, changes that are happening. But yeah, it is the kind, that kind of work that excites me the most and probably is the most frustrating as a translator. As I work on my own translations of plays, I know that I'll keep coming back to these interviews, and I want to thank both Nahmasandro and Ayogawa for taking the time to speak with me and for sharing such wonderful insights into the world of theater translation. Anyone interested in reading their translations can find links to both Aya and Nahma's websites on our website, and I encourage everyone listening to keep an eye out for any future productions of their work on stage. I know I will. Translator's Note is produced by Claire Brigerbelsky, Abby Ryder-Huth, and Julia Conrad. This show is an affiliate of Exchange's Journal of Literary Translation and is made with the support of the University of Iowa Department of World Languages, Literatures, and Cultures and the International Writing Program. Thanks to Nate Repaz for the theme music and credit for other music used in the show can be found on our website. As always, Translator's Note also wants to thank Aruna Ji, Jan Stein, and the MFA in Literary Translation community at the University of Iowa for their support. And thank you again to our guests and to all of you for listening. Okay. Traduction. <laughs>